0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So, John, we uh, we have a special guest on this uh, episode of the podcast, someone we've been speaking about quite a bit on the podcast recently.
1: Mm-hmm, indeed. I'm very excited to have Christian Lass join us today for a little chat. His journey into watchmaking has been well covered elsewhere, so we'll link to some previous interviews he's done with uh, independent thinking on, on Fifth Wrist Radio and the Keeping Time podcast from Oster Watches for anyone who'd like to get some more backgrounds on that. But rather than re- rehash all of that, uh, I figured we'd, we'd take the conversation in a, a slightly different direction with him today and I explore uh, some perhaps more more technically in-depth topics with him. And
0: it's probably a good thing that we did forego the uh, information that he's already put out in other interviews because I think we ended up talking for nearly three hours probably not a bad thing that we skipped some of the stuff that's already been covered
1: mm-hmm. yeah it would have gone quite a bit longer if <laughs> we we delved into yeah. sort of the, the full backstory but for anyone who who is curious and just wants a, a, a quick introduction uh, christian lass is a danish watchmaker and he worked for a time for soren anderson doing some restoration work for the royal family there in, in denmark amongst other clients and from there he went on to work for the independent watchmaker Vianney Halter for a time, working on projects like the Capistan And then he was the head watchmaker, and not just head watchmaker, the only watchmaker for the Patek Philippe Museum for close to a decade. Mm-hmm. He is an independent watchmaker, a speaker, and a teacher. And uh, you can find out more about his teaching over at learnwatchmaking.com, more about the, the watchmaker himself at christianlass.com and christianlass.dk. And of course, he is an excellent follow on Instagram at ChristianLass. Welcome to the show, Christian.
2: Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for letting me in on, on this uh, amazing podcast. Been listening to quite a few episodes of this, and it's uh, really interesting.
1: It's our pleasure. What was life like for young Christian Lass growing up in, in Denmark? And, and what was it that drew you? to study GSM and Bluetooth and the like, and, and how has that education as an engineer influenced your approach to, to watchmaking?
2: When you're growing up, you know, like it's really, you always ask when, when you're little, what do you want to become when you're big, you know, and in the beginning is like firefighters and police and stuff like this. And in the end, you, I think most people, when you see look at it, it kind of becomes the same as the, as the parents, more or less, or get in the same direction. So uh, my parents is uh, like my father is an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and building like pharmaceutical or, like in installations, like production lines and stuff like that. And uh, my mother been like a like a pharmacist for uh, for all her, her all her career. So uh, basically, I was uh, thinking when I grew up like engineering. I I knew that from my father. It seems like really uh, like like interesting, and uh, and I had this. Uh, Interest for electronics, I became like one of the first, uh, or, like youngest, ham uh, operators, like I like, what's called, like one that's, uh, with uh, like radio, what's called wires and Morse and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and um, and, uh, and 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 then it, I was really curious about like the electronics, and it was basically because I didn't really un- understand it. So I uh, went to the university and studied like uh, electronic engineering, and it really catch on there and i went into this uh, chip production where you can do all the silicium and and, and all this and also with some of the first uh, bluetooth uh where i was uh, helping some of the PhD uh, students with doing some 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 tasks there so in my spare time i i helped with that and then i just continue with my my study on, on the side from for, for that there was there was nothing in the stars written that i have become like a like a watchmaker from from beginning that, that that's for sure
0: it sounds like we're uh, we're fortunate that you were in Denmark and and the uh, GSM market there sort of collapsed because I think if we were in uh Silicon Valley we probably would have lost you to the the tech world instead of the watch world.
2: Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely believing. But I mean in in life there always comes like these kind of roadblocks and when you experience them it's kind of, you know, like you think it's the, like almost the end of your life you saying think, ah, damn, you know, like now I've been studying like this for 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 years and now there's no like job opportunity afterwards for for for, for what you are studying but actually in my life I always the experienced these kind of blocks come it always something better always come come, come up and in, in my case it was like a like watchmaking that just popped out, out of the blue by by finding a book in in the library
1: mm-hmm. so what is the the name of the the watchmaking school there in Denmark
2: yeah, it's uh, called. It's, it's basically called the Danish School of Watchmaking. So it's uh, there's only one school in uh, in, in Denmark, and uh, now it's uh, called like uh, ZBC. Uh, I can't even remember what it uh, stands for, but it's uh, but but it's just the Danish School of Watchmaking. We only have one one school here in Denmark, and uh, in, in Denmark, since we are a country that doesn't produce uh, watches, we are educated in uh, restoration work and in uh, in after sales service. So this, this is like the main topics that, that you learn in school. And, and, and uh, that, that was like, for me, it was extremely interesting in my uh, apprentice time because I was lucky to get apprentice to one of the uh, earlier academy members of the ACI, Mr. Søren Anderson, not the Sven Anderson, but Søren Anderson who was building like antique uh, clocks and planetariums and, and, and all this. So I spent uh, four years in his uh, workshop, which was absolutely magic. I mean, we were we making some really, really interesting uh, objects there. All the kind of uh, yeah, objects that came through his workshop was uh, not something you will see anywhere else. I mean, I made every, every everything from champion clocks to a six-meter-long uh, telescope, uh, Jens Olsen's world clock, uh, all these kind of extremely complicated and very, very interesting uh, thing. And that was something that was really inspirational and, and also Mr. Anderson have like a huge uh, library of uh, watchmaking and art and all, all this stuff where I spent like most of my time uh, just reading, reading, reading and get to know as much as I can about like uh, like watchmaking. And, 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 and that, that was like a, like a huge inspiration and, and still is uh, to today like this foundation that was uh, laid at that time.
0: So it sounds like the work that you're doing at uh, Soren's shop you were you were learning sort of larger machining skills not just the the work that uh, a watchmaker is necessarily doing to to make parts but even working on larger pieces like clocks and and other things so it sounds like you you got a pretty good foundation in machining there as well.
2: Yes absolutely. So basically in in my uh, apprentice place in uh, Mr. Anderson's workshop there Dad was uh, like anti uh, clocks and scientific instruments and all these sort of uh, things. And in in the school, I learned all about like uh, wristwatches. So uh, in 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 the workshop, uh, of course, you don't have any spare parts. We so have to make every everything. And then you you have to learn like machining, milling, and uh, and turning, right. and all all, all these uh, things.
0: And making your own tools for things that don't you don't have tools for and whatnot and jigs and things like that.
2: Yes, ab- absolutely, and, and and also just like the thing of when when you do like restoration on this this level, you have to look at kind of which kind of material is it. So you do like analysis of of the materials, so you can see what's the composition inside, because who knows what they put in the brass, you know, like in in sixteen hundred something. So they did they did, they just took whatever they had. And if, if you have to restore something and then there's a part missing or, and then, then you have to make like a small bridge or whatever, then you have to have material in exact same composition. So you cannot see it afterwards. And then, um, you do like the chemical analysis and then you ask like the one who is casting here, uh, like the, like the caster to, to make you exactly that mix of material. And then you get the raw material and, and do all the pre, Steps that you need to do. For, for example, in the old days, all the brass pieces was like uh, hammered uh, to, to, together, so they, they, they were like compressed. So you would first have a casting that was like almost twice as high, and then afterwards you will hammer it down uh, to to be like really com, com, compact uh, to eliminate all like bubbles and all this that's in the material, and also make it like extremely hard. So so, so that, that that was all these uh, like ancient techniques that I was uh, learning right from from beginning. And, uh, and and that was basically also the foundation for my later career in in, in Switzerland.
1: So, what sort of equipment was Soren using for analyzing the, the various metals that you guys were working with?
2: Yeah, but there there you will just take a little uh, scrape of like some some chips off, and you send it to a laboratory uh, that they can do like 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 test work. And then you will get just like a piece of paper back that says like, and so so many percent zinc, and there's also so many percent copper, and and so on. Yeah. And many times you can see they just put in whatever they had, you know, like it's like lead and and copper and zinc and what what have you, and sometimes also like aluminium and everything just mixed it together. <laughs> so it's yeah. Yeah, it's it's not always so so easy to to get, you know, like an exact same material. And sometimes, as I said, you 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 have to produce it.
1: So S- Soren Anderson's formal training was in conservation. Yes. How has is, how is your time in his shop informed the way that you approach restoration work? And, and do you draw a distinction between conservation and, and restoration work?
2: Yes, uh, ab- absolutely. Restoration, let's say, that is like to bring a piece back exactly to the state it was when it left, like, like the maker. And, uh, and then it can be, it depends on which degree you do it. Some, sometimes you want to leave a little uh, traces of the history of, 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 that it gone through. Uh, for, for for example, if you don't want to take all the scratches and marks away, because then it, it kind of loses the, the originality of the piece. Where con- conservation is more about like stopping the decay uh, and then stopping um, the piece in exactly that state that it's in when like right now. So uh, for for example, if you have like uh, one of the clocks from uh, the the 1600, like in the end it's like 1580 around there. You, you have these kind of uh, drum watches, for example. They're often like extremely rusted and so because everything is made in uh, iron. And then there, for example, if you want to, if you restore it back to original condition and running con- condition, you will not have the same kind of object anymore because you have to remake so many parts and, and re- redo everything. Then when you look at the piece afterwards, yes, it looks good and everything, but it's not the original piece and you don't see the original work anymore. So their con- conservation is uh, like a better choice where you stop the process. There's like many different ways, uh, like either chemical or electrically, electrochemically. You can go in and, uh, and, and and stop the decaying process, like do and stop the oxidation and, and, and all these uh, things. So this was also techniques that I, I used a lot in my apprentice time and was taught all these kind of various distinctions between one and, and the other. And also just to analyze like rust, when, when you see like something simple as rust, you see some red uh, stuff coming out of your, your, your steel parts, then it's actually like three different layers uh, depending on how many electrons it has uh, con- consumed. Uh, so you're, you're first you have like the red layer, under that you have like a black layer, and in the end you have like a layer that you cannot see. So if you just remove like 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 the rust like the red layer, then you can see afterwards that you will get like some black powder underneath and and then you continue remove that and then often if you don't know that and then then you will just stop when uh that, that there's there's nothing more to to see but actually the rust is like deep in the material and it will start rusting exactly in the same spot afterwards because. These atoms that are like changed in the first stage that you cannot see yet that are ready to transform to the second stage will then later uh, transform and then start the, the process will just start over. This kind of layers you can with uh, electrolysis uh, stop this uh, kind of transformation and then uh, make like the, the decaying process like, uh, like to, to, to stop it and then you can keep the pieces for a very long time afterwards. So this is just some of the techniques there's many many more you can you can use for. It.
0: So it does sound like uh, based on your work as uh, as a restorer for for Soren and then also your watchmaking school experience there you really were perfectly placed to work for Patek in their museum and uh and and doing work there because you you really did have the perfect education to work for them.
2: Yeah, I mean I was not the one to decide if I was. <laughs> You heard the story before, but the, the industry, like in 2009, everything was bad, and and I had to to kind of look for for another job, and and I was talking with uh, like many many people, and in Jenda was talking with uh, with with Defour, who was men- mentioning that uh, there there was this opportunity in the tech Museum, and uh, and 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 I honestly thought I was going to be you know like watchmaker number, number ten in in the corner that have to polish a screw or something like like that. I, I had no idea that it was. Uh, one like the watchmaker to, to take care of the whole museum, so 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 I I just wrote an application and in the middle of the interview, you know, like I kind of realized that uh, the job was to take care <laughs> of the whole collection. So it's, yeah, you it's a, you were going to be the guy. Who yeah, exactly. Ex- ex- yeah. ex- exactly. So I I had no no idea when I started, but then of course I mean they they tested me for months before I I, I, I went in, and I mean nobody is uh, let in on a collection like this without uh, they 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 know what they're doing. So in in the end, I went through all the the, the process and all the tests, and and I get the job afterwards. So yes, my former education, I think most of all my interest for for learning and always like reading. Like I, I don't know how many hundreds of old books I've been been reading, and all the I taught myself the like the gothic uh, like scriptures because all the German mm-hmm. books are written in all these uh, strange letter that 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 you normally cannot read, and and then just. We have literally like plowing through like hundreds of books and to in order to get the, the information because many of the books are and at that time, it was kind of they didn't really describe the processes. They were, they only described like what was difficult. And at the time, it was often like mathematics and like uh, gear calculations mm-hmm. and, 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 and all this. So, so they they will they will spend like forty pages on telling how the shape of the teeth should be, and then in the end they say like, ah, oh, we we just built the the wheel like like normal. Mm, okay, cool. That <laughs> that doesn't help me very much, but
0: <laughs> yeah, I've done some research in a, in a number of historical techniques like uh, niello making and things like that. And yeah. it's frustrating when you're reading these fifteenth sixteenth century treatises and they say, you know, do this in the usual way. Yeah, and exactly. you're like, Well, that's what I want to know. What is the usual way? Exactly. here? I, I don't have any clue what that is.
2: <laughs> then later they didn't discover books that actually explain the processes. That is like there's like a German book by Martins. It's like a two or like it's a small book, and then there's an extra book with all all the drawings. That that one is like phenomenal. Of course, it's in German, but it just hmm. explains like step by step everything. That was kind of the the go to book for for restoration work, uh, to, to 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 know how to do all these kind of uh, uh, like like steps in in the process there.
1: So what was the the testing process like to land that job at at Patek? Sounds like it was quite arduous.
2: Yeah, I, I, I was first like in, uh, in in the factory where I was like uh, tested on on the normal watches, you know, like stuff that can replace if I basically destroyed it, you know. <laughs> so if, <laughs> if, if they were if they were just like the like the modern calibers, and then more and more complicated. And then then afterwards, I was uh, three months uh, testing time in in the museum before I, I I get the job there.
1: What are some of the makers and, and manufacturers work? That you were exposed to while at the Patek Fleet Museum, that you most admire.
2: I mean, the the museum is such a I mean magnificent place. I mean, there's like if you're interested in, in watching, there's just the best of the best for the last 500 years. So there's it's hard just to pick some of them. But I think like some of them, like what, what I really admire is like the. Like the early uh, Patek work, uh, that is really, really interesting. And then there's like the early uh, chronometer makers like uh, Berthoud and and, and these people. And then there's the Swiss uh, Oye. He made like also some fabulous stuff, like the really early chronometer maker in in, in Switzerland. And his apprentice, like uh, Sylvan Marais, he was also doing like some awesome stuff. It's like super simple, but it's just made to perfection everything. And uh, and kind of solved uh, kind of uh, try to solve some of the problems that there was in the early watchmaking at OE and Silver Marais' time. where, for, for example, with the profile of the teeth and stuff like this. So instead of having pinions with like eight leaves, he he added like a wheel. So uh, so so you'll have like five wheels in the gear train instead of four, and uh, and then the, this. Um, uh what what, what is called then you will have like 16 leaves and all the pinions and in, in, instead and just like uh in interesting stuff like like, like that and, and and the last one i really admire i mean that is such a like a little bit underrated watchman nobody really talks about him so much of course the you can see it on the auction parishes now that kind of kicks off now with this maker is like a albert potter it was an uh, Amer- American watchmaker who worked in the American uh, watch industry. There, I think he was a toolmaker or something in the beginning, and then he was making it like a, a long story where he also worked as a watchmaker in Cuba when Cuba was some kind of holiday paradise for for, for the state, and uh, then later he came to uh, to uh, to Switzerland, and then he merged like the, the the Swiss the Swiss way of making watches with the American, and there just comes some in like really really amazingly beautiful pieces out of it and and the and the craftsmanship in, in his watches are just like insane i mean the the finish and and all this on on, on these pieces i mean i've never seen anything like it in any piece and, and this is some watches that are normally you there's not so much talk about them but it's starting to to gain a a, a little bit on on the on the auction scene with uh with with, with these watches as well
1: are there particular pieces by Potter in the the Patek collection that you most admire?
2: Uh, yes, I mean they had one. I don't remember the the, the number and offered. I think it was like number one hundred and fifty five. I'm not hundred percent sure, but it it was um, a pocket chronometer with a uh, constant force uh, detent escapement in in inside. Uh, so so that, that that was that was one I restored. Uh, I had no idea really about Potter uh, before, but we have to make. Uh, one of my main jobs in the Philip Museum, that was like to make uh, uh, pictures of, of the movements. Uh, I, I I was not standing in with camera camera, but like to prepare the movements for for the photographer, so so they could take pictures of it, so we can make like catalogs and publicity material and all this. And, and therefore, I have basically taken most of the co- collection. I would say like eighty percent of everything. I have I had out and take movements out and take everything apart and, and looked into it. So that, that 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 was also like an amazing learning experience to to, to see all these uh, pieces uh, live in, instead of just inside the inside the showcase.
0: Do you know if those photographs are available to the public if they want to get access to them or is that just something that's being used as a reference internally? Yeah,
2: no, so most of them is like reference internally, of course and uh, mm. and and then there's um, like like the books, the the catalogs, there's uh, the really big uh, book of uh, Peter Fries like the and That is the curator and director of the museum. He um, he he made this uh, enormous book of the antique uh, collection in in the museum, and uh, and there I think we made something like three thousand photos or something like 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 that, and uh, and and that is in inside this uh, book. I think you can just order them directly from the Patzak side. It, it's a fantastic book if you're into uh, antique uh, watchmaking.
1: Yeah, another gentleman with the initials AP uh, whose work I, I quite admire from, from a similar era, uh, not Audemars Piguet, that would be two fellows. Um, Is Albert Peloton, do you, or have you been exposed to any of Peloton's work in, in all of your restoration?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that, that, that was a uh, Peloton uh, like a uh, made from uh, James uh, Caesar Peloton, uh, the troupeillon maker. I uh, When I started in the museum in uh, 2009, it must have been in in nine or in ten, I made the chronometer. Uh, uh, what's called the co- collection. So that was all the Peloton, uh, Tourbillon watches, and uh, and the watches that went for the observatory uh, uh, competition in Geneva. So uh, Peloton's work is also absolutely fantastic. Uh, that is, uh, is especially like his Tourbillon cases. Uh, that is like and that's also no n- like I've never seen anything like 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 these cases he make there. That is uh, also. Really, really fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, truly sublime stuff. I, I think if I could only have one tourbillon pocket watch, I'd probably settle on a, a Peloton. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: It's, it's not a bad choice for that, or uh, Oye oh yeah, or something like that. That would be uh, mm. amazing. And o- o- also when, when we talk about the tourbillons, um, I was uh, also doing uh, not really restoration, was more like cleaning work, where we clean the movements. This There was of the um, Patek, like a 34G uh, movement. Uh, and, for, and 34s and, all, and and all these this these are also like really really amazing movements i mean that is uh they they really really push every limit to to make these these watches as precise as possible and uh, and, and, and still they have like a, an aesthetical part you know like the, the, the round There's basically like a square a 34t and a round one and, 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 and the round one that is made by, uh, I think it was made by André, uh, what's called uh, Bonin and Sibak, it uh, is absolutely amazing work that that, that is inside. Uh, also, like a normal tourbillon, and have like a fairly big case and the balance wheel, especially in the modern ones, are really uh, small. So we have this gigantic case and a small balance wheel, but here they just Push everything so the pillars are like C-shaped, so they could uh, accommodate like a really, really, really big balance in inside this uh, tublion case, and uh, and then with like beryllium, I think it was beryllium, uh, um, what's called main plate in, in the case uh, to make it like anti-magnetic and and, and all this. So this was uh, really an uh, interesting uh, stuff.
1: I feel sorry for the poor machinist who who had to make that. that yeah. <laughs> A very healthy endeavor to undertake. <laughs> so, have you had the opportunity to work on any of Patek's Halo pieces, like the the Grave Super complication or the Caliber Eighty Nine, Star Caliber Two Thousand, and the like?
2: Uh Yes, I have worked with um, the was a uh, Caliber Nine. I just worked with them in general, like for a museum work, taking in and out and this, and take some pictures of it. So, I never really worked on on, on that.
0: In some of your previous interviews, you've talked. Of, you were talking a little bit about. Uh, sort of modern Patek being watches that were made in the last fifty years, and they those were the kinds of watches that you could get parts for because they they still existed in the archive. How what sort of percentage of modern Pateks versus older pieces, maybe not even from Patek that that you had to work on in the in the collection? Like, what was the sort of percentage of of each of them?
2: Uh, but basically, I mean, I never work with modern Pateks. I mean, modern, I think they. The latest one I worked with was like from the 1970s or something. And then mm. okay. what, what I worked most with uh, in the Patek collection was the um, like pelotons and the, the big, high complicated uh, pocket watches, like the, all these uh, triple complications. And, and then I made quite a few of these, uh, what's called like the 2499, that Valshu uh, movement with a perpetual calendar on top. These sort of movements that would that that was what i, I did so i don't have really uh, any experience in in the modern ones uh, right. so it's uh i only have in in the vintage pieces
0: well that's uh, probably the more interesting bit anyways they're they're the uh, the modern ones you can work on sort of anywhere but the the vintage stuff is is the stuff that you're, you're not going to be able to just get a hold of and and be able to uh to be able to work on
2: yeah, I mean, uh, for, uh, for, for like a reliability uh, point of view, yes, uh, absolutely. I would also say like the, the modern Pateks, I mean, there's, there's also some really, really uh, crazy movements that are super interesting. Like uh, the, the minute repeaters and the, uh, and the caliber 300, uh, like the most complicated uh, wristwatch. When, when, when I see the Patek watches, I mean, uh, like the modern ones, there are really, really a lot of uh, details that people don't really realize how many operations that goes into just make something as a wheel or something like this in order to mm-hmm. get like this high finish of, of of all the parts. And uh and and, and that is uh, something I mean I really would love to to work on some of the modern uh, calibers as well.
1: Now, over the past decade and a bit, Patek has been slowly introducing some Silicium components into their their own watches. And you mentioned earlier on in the show that you studied uh, somewhat about some some silicon fabbing and, and the like would you yourself ever put a silicium part in, in one of the watches you're making or or is that taboo for you
2: mm, i don't know if it's taboo i think it's i think it's interesting it also depends you know like watchmaking is a little bit like just like music i mean it depends what what kind of style you're 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 playing of course like Patek is very classical so of course it's 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 a it was quite a a new thing that they put in a uh, silicium part, but a uh, from a technical point of view, I mean, silicium makes a lot of sense. It's fairly easy to uh, manufacture, and it's fairly easy to uh, replicate. Extremely precise, so you can make like really, really precise hairsprings. And uh, and, and and the Patek one is quite ingenious because it's uh, mm-hmm. it's mixing, you know, like an overcoil uh, spring with, with a with a flat hairspring. So basically, like an overcoil hairspring. Uh, will expand equally all the way so the center of gravity will remain in the center and uh, that is not the case with a standard uh, flat hairspring and, uh, and uh, tech uh, they incorporated like they basically like vary the thickness of the hairspring with the solution one so they can make like a flat hairspring behave like an overcoil hairspring and therefore make like extremely flat watches with a uh, great accuracy if, if I ever want to use it myself uh, I I don't know it's it's uh, I, 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 I don't think so it's not really my thing I mostly like like the more classical thing and also something that you can like replicate in in the future let, let, let's say like one of my watches like 100 years from now go into like a watchmaker or somebody who's restoring watches and have to have like a new hairspring that is um, f- at the moment is difficult with silicium. I mean you never know in the future. But uh, for, for now, it would be something extremely difficult to, to have made just like one. I mean, it's easy enough to go to a manufacturer in, in Switzerland and say that, that, that you want like 10,000, 10, but just to have one, it's, uh, <laughs> that is a, that's a different story.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's something we've talked about a number of times, the, the challenges of making, you can make one of something without too much effort. You can make a million of something without too much effort, but making
2: 10 of something or, or 100 of something becomes really challenging in the watch world. Yeah, exactly. But, but but the thing is uh, that it's the amount of time that uh, I mean, I've seen how it works in in inside. You know, like first you have to have a, a constructor that is uh, making the drawings. Then you send it on to another engineer that is then uh, making it the, the drawings. You know, like right form machinery, and then you send it to a machinist, that, like to one that do, does the coding for the machines, and then there is like very. Like for some of the components, you need like five, six different machines that all have to be set up with like extreme precision. And so, so to make one piece, you know, when, when you set up a machine, you you do first like just like a, like a test round where you maybe, it maybe takes like 50 to 100 pieces before you have one piece correct because mm. you're, you're adjusting all the, the, the cutters and the, how deep they should go and so on. And and then of course, when it sets it up, then it just can, can run like over and over and over again. If the cycle time for making, let's just say like a pinion is maybe, I don't know, like 30 to one minute, like in, in like 30 seconds to, to a minute. Then like, if, if you calculate how many, uh, like minutes that, that, that days in 24 hours, then you can see how many pinions you can make in a day. And it really, really uh, quick gets like a lot of pinions. And and that and that's why, you know, like the production price for a thousand is almost the same as for one.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make sense to spend a day or two setting up a machine and then just, just make a hundred of them. No. You're, you're better off letting that machine run for two weeks and, and make a year's supply of, of that part instead. Exactly.
1: Or in the case of an independent watchmaker, it's a, <laughs> a, a lifetime. lifetime supply. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah of, of course. I mean, I mean, that that's also one of our, I would say it's like an advantage that many of us can, you know, like make. Pinions and wheels. Uh, of course, it takes like like, like a long time and to uh, to make one off uh, like like a one wheel, but uh, but it also makes us like really, you know, like free and creative to do like uh, different models uh, because oh, many of us can, can can make all all these parts. Uh, so in, 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 instead of that, you have to to turn around like a huge uh, manufacturing process uh, that that is like a whole uh, different uh, story. So when, when you just make like small series of 10 to 100 watches, then it's like easy enough to, to make like a little change or big change to the production. Where if you're manufacturing, I don't know, many, many thousand pieces, then it, then it's not so easy.
1: When you worked at the Patek Philippe Museum, you had two workshops, one public-facing and, and one behind the scenes. And at Vienna Halter, you had access to just about any tool you could possibly need to, to fabricate a part. Now that you're back in, in Denmark, what is your studio setup like, and in what ways, if any, did your time with Patek and Vianney and, and Soren Anderson inform your current setup?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a, that's actually a good question, because uh, machinery, if, if you want to make a watch, you'll really quick realize that you need a, a ton of tools and a ton of machinery, and a lot of it, especially now, the prices are really going up uh, very, very fast. Uh, so therefore, you need like a huge investment to, to get all these, these machines. I have been very fortunate to be uh, in an industry especially in Switzerland where um, the availability of machines was uh, was really high you know I could uh, I found like a lot of machines in in, in Switzerland and uh, for really like, like like a fair price but but also by by working especially with a independent watchmaker uh wanna yeah like one a really like a genius in in, in machinery and, and and also in watchmaking in general like Alder, there I really saw which machines is usable and which machine is not. You know, like that is a really, you know, like you, you have like some fundamental machines, like pillars that you have to have, you know, like you 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 have to have like something where you can measure. So something like our like an optical, like a profile projector, for example, that is like is essential because you cannot sit with small measuring instruments like a vineyard gauge and, and measure parts. So that, that therefore, like a, a profile projector is essential. Pointing machine is essential if when you want to make like a small production, because uh, w- like the, what the pointing machine does for the one that doesn't know it is just it makes like small points that you can then use later to center your drills when you want to drill holes precise, and, and and that is really essential as well because if you really look at it, like a watch is just two plates with holes drilled in the right places and. That is really, you know, like when you first un- un- understand that that you need precise drilling and you need precise measurement, then you can pretty much do everything afterwards. Then it's just a matter of building the component that goes in between that frame that 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 you have built, and then and then as well, uh, I have like a wheel cutting machine to to make like miniature wheels. So I I have our a Dixie uh, wheel cutting machine, which is like a small hand operating machine that is. It was not made in that many. Uh, I, I have only seen, I think, like four or five of them. I know uh, Viani have one of them or two, and the four have one, Carrie have one, and and then there's uh, what's called Stu have one, and from uh, this seven thirty eight uh, workshop, and I think that's all the machines I've ever seen of this Dixie one, and then then I have one. And the clever thing about this machine is what it was made for prototyping. So it's really it's really slow. I mean, you can make one or two wheel that at a time. But but the cool thing about it is that it's really really easy to 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 set up and and, and adjust. Uh, because you can easy enough get you know like a big production uh, wheel cutting machine that will do everything automatically. But the problem with these machines is that. Uh, first of all they all, always set up just use like one type of wheel so it's really hard to, to change like the number of teeth on the wheels uh, because uh, you have to then make like new gears and all this for the machines in order to do like a different uh, division so there's a lot of machine machining and a lot of uh, expenses in making parts just to change the the number of, uh, of teeth on a on, on a wheel uh, so so the, the, these machine goes like for really for nothing normally when you when you see them in in, in Switzerland it's like the I don't even want, know what you can they, they they work like a screw cutter like a generation machine thing is called those machines i mean you're really tempted in the beginning to buy one like like that because wow i can make like you know like 100 wheels an hour but but it's uh, when you <laughs> when when you, when you can only make one that is uh, you know like 6 million in diameter with 80 T's. and
0: yeah that, that's very well, limiting isn't it yeah exactly I have to say one of the machines that I I've, I've seen in your Instagram feed and I, I think I may have commented on it when when you posted it, is uh you have a, a case making lathe which is designed to to trace the profile of another part to to turn the uh to turn the case and I think maybe this this might actually be the first pe- uh, post of yours that I ever saw I yeah. think uh, my friend Phil Poiré actually uh sent it to me because he knew I was working on some watch cases and I I, I can honestly say I've never seen one of these lathes before it's a <laughs> it almost combines a, a machinist lathe with um with a freehand you know sort of wood turning lathe but also a pattern following at, at the same time it's a it, it really is an intriguing machine and I, I i can honestly say i've never seen anything like that before yeah yeah
2: yeah but that that is also like another example of when you've been like an insider in the industry and i've seen like right. these, these these workshops where they did like restoration of cases and and could build like new new cases and, and where, where to work with this sort of machines and then uh, and then then afterwards when I, I went searching for, for machinery for making cases because i, I knew for when I want to start for myself, one of the things that i I, I want to do myself was like uh, with case making because mm-hmm. I found find it first of all I, it's it's such a really really a, a nice craft to do the case making because it's so so nice to do like the sculpturing of the case and all the design right. and, and, and and all this and it mixes kind of this very precise uh, mechanics that we are making with like art and sculpture and all this and that mm-hmm. is uh, one of the things that I that I really like so so, so finding these machines I, I found like a whole uh, like a like a whole lot of uh, basically like closed up uh, case making uh, workshop that have just uh, that has been standing in uh, in in the back for of our, of, of, our, of a big stock of tools on some uh, uh, what's called like an, a pallet, or what's called like the one for uh, transporting stuff, and uh, when when I get them, I, there was like five centimeter of dust and dirt and stuff <laughs> and stuff, and the guy just told me Un, under there somewhere there's some really cool machines. So just like mm, okay, and uh, and so, so 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 I bought, and 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 the thing is also you know like. With case making is also takes a lot of machines because yes like the thing with case making is that you have to change tools all the time because then you have to turn yep. inside you have to turn a groove for this and that and uh, and and you have to do it in so many different places, especially if you make like a three piece case as I make then just, just like the front basal there, there, there there's like two sides on and then you have the middle part is also two two sides, and then uh, the back is also have like like a side on that and and all this have to be like immensely precise in order to fit together, especially if we make like a click case. Um, Yeah, they snap together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when when they're snapping together. And therefore I have like four of these, um, I think you also saw in my feed where it is like a revolver lathe where where there's like on each lathe there's like eight tools. So you have like three tools that turns on the outside of the amateur and four tools on the inside. And, uh, but, but you need like four of these machines, you know, like, and, and if I didn't have seen workshops like this and see how they were working, you know, I would never have, have known that. I've just bought one and then I would get crazy from standing and setting up all these tools. So basically, when you make a, want to to, to make a case, you set up each lathe with the tools you you need. And then, then, then all of it should fit together afterwards when, when you produce the parts.
0: Yeah. I was introduced to those turret lathes at, David Lindo, he's a clockmaker yeah, in yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. He showed me how he he sets his stuff up, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of these tools are just not commonly available in North America, and no, and no. you know we don't have the the access to the older machines like you do. We you know, we didn't have nearly as many workshops doing that kind of work. Uh, I've I've actually been building a custom CNC lathe for doing a lot of that work because I was finding the same frustrations where I was constantly needing to change out tools to do the inside outside diameter work and everything and it was just unfortunately without access to those turret lathes it's it's a little challenging to do on a manual machine that's just too slow so i'm i'm actually building a cnc lathe to do that
2: yeah because you, you can you can you can do a lay, like like a case in our in a normal lace, like a Schaubling one or two or something like, like like that. That is not a problem. It's only going to take like very long time, and you will never yeah. have like a consistent re- 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 result because you have to change tools like a lot of times.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and you have to make a decision in your life: is well, what do I want to be doing? Do I want to be sitting and turning the same thing over and over again, or or do you want to be spending the time doing the challenging work that uh, that? You're better suited for.
2: Yeah, def- definitely.
0: And while you do the majority of your work on manual machines, you do still have a CNC machine in the shop as well, right?
2: Yeah, de- de- definitely. I mean, I, I have a CNC machine because just like there's a lot of people thinking like handmade watches. That then you make everything by by hand, and if you, as we touched on a little bit before, if I have to make everything by by hand, the watch is going to be totally unpayable afterwards. In in watchmaking, ever since like. Whenever watches was made, machine have always been been been, been used in, in 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 watchmaking before it was m- small like a drill presses and stuff that was set up mm. in, in in a way so so you could produce uh, parts and, and, and then the machines became more and more ad- advanced and uh, so so the last at least hundred years has been used with uh, with like cam operated ma- machines. And, right. uh, and 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 those machines had then been replaced with what we call a CNC today, which has become like a really bad word in in, in watchmaking. But what it means <laughs> is actually the machine is just controlled with an electric engine in, instead of a mechanical uh, mechanism. Uh, so I don't see like a like a big problem in in uh, in producing like some of the raw forms of uh, of, the, of the watches with uh, with the electronic control milling machines. Because it saves me uh, a lot of work that I can then put into to making like a uh, better work in, in in the other end. So uh, so so the process of making a watch when I do it is may- maybe like twenty percent of the work is um, like the machinery work, and and, mm-hmm. and and the rest is is the handmade and the handcrafted uh, pieces and uh, the decorating part and and, and and all this.
0: I can appreciate the the sentiment there. I I started out. Uh, I I come from a jewelry background and then started making fountain pens and I was making complex threads and doing them by hand, but it it becomes tedious and it's easy to make mistakes. And there's a lot of similar things in, in watchmaking where you end up with uh, sort of tedious and repetitive work that's, that's difficult to do well if you're doing it manually, but a machine can do it quickly. And you're really not losing any of the spirit of the watch and and the art, artistry of the watch if you if you have a machine do these repetitive tasks that are that are not particularly interesting like they're not really adding a lot of uh, a lot of value to the work and I think a lot of people are you know as you say CNC is sort of a dirty word in in watchmaking and in collecting but at the end of the day if it means that I can make some more watches or I can spend more time doing the interesting things that I'm actually good at, in my case, you know, things like engine turning and enamel work and things like that. I would rather spend my time adding value to what I'm doing by doing that that work that can't mm. be done by a machine, and and let a machine do the things that are that it's good at. That I'm, you know, I'm just bored doing. Like it just it's too repetitive.
2: Yeah, but but also you have to remember in the old days, like uh, labor was really cheap compared to sure. to, to today. So in the old days, instead of having uh, like uh, automatic machines to do it, you just had like an army of people uh, to do it instead. Yeah. But uh, to, to today, that is uh, unpayable. So if if I have to have somebody to replace that, I have to have like at least five six employees in my workshop. Sure. Yeah. Uh, to, to to make that, or I have to work like five six times as long uh, to, to 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 do like like a piece. Uh, so 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 therefore, it's uh, it makes sense to 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 make that. And, and and also as a footnote, I mean, I don't know of any watchmaker that are living from making watches that are not using CNC. I mean, that is exactly uh, uh, because there's there's a lot of projects out there like handmade and do everything in small laser, just like I show in my in in my masterclass uh, course. Yeah. But of course, like the masterclass course that is designed to to teach you uh, watchmaking and all the different uh, ways to, to to do it and not to, to make money and to, to make like a watch <laughs> brand that is com- com- completely different uh a completely different business so if if you have to to make a business out of uh, making uh, watches then uh, you 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 have to to, to use uh, you have to um, uh, what is called optimize your your workflow uh, to to right. get produced the the pieces needed
0: yeah i i call my cnc machines my mechanical apprentices because that's really what they're doing they're filling the role yeah, exactly. that an apprentice would have 100 you know 100 years ago or 150 years ago but as you say the finding inexpensive labor today who can do the work is challenging in fact in in a situation like mine where i'm living in ottawa i can't find people who are actually skilled to do that work and so it's it's difficult for me even if i wanted to pay somebody to do it it would be challenging for me to find somebody who could actually do it mm. so it's it really it it is um sort of replacing that apprentice system for me and uh, and it's an important part of of my business because as you say if you want to make a living off of this, it's it's impossible to do all of these things, you know, by hand and and completely manually. Mm, absolutely.
1: Yeah, the, only, the only person off hand I, I can think of who's still doing everything by hand, and I, I believe he's still alive, I certainly hope he's still alive, is uh, Christian Klings, but you're certainly right. I mean, everyone is, is using CNC machines, and there's, there's no reason it should be a dirty word. I mean, Roger mm, Smith yeah. is using them. I mean, Kerry in has been... Profiled and featured by Haas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Philippe Dufour's got wire EDM machines doing his, his main plates for him. Exactly, it's a, a force multiplier.
2: No, exactly. I mean, the the, the parts that you see the other are using, I mean, they they come from 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 somewhere. They're not they're not just yeah. uh, made in the workshop. Otherwise, it would be be impossible to 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 make everything. So, so, so of course they have like so suppliers making the different things, and then some people like Roger don't really have many suppliers, and it really depends on Carey or. Carrey, or that, that's all made yeah. like in-house, but they also have like a huge uh, staff uh, compared to that. But it also, also d- d- depends if if I if I want to make my watch without making like a main plate and making like different uh, what's called like setting system and different system for dial and and, and all this, uh, then 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 I could also make it where you say like I do all handmade and I and I turn like three bridges on in the faceplate lathe, just uh, and and then it's like. I don't really can think you can call that handmade either, because then you have made like 30 percent of, of the watch by putting mm-hmm. uh like yep. new plates on, but, but but the rest is still made and manufactured by a machine just, just like uh, by, by somebody else uh, so, so so that is uh yeah, I don't know uh, so it's 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 like a little bit uh like a muddy term with this like handmade uh, because of, of course it's made uh, with, uh, with, with help from machinery. Because no nobody can sit and file and uh, turn and turn out like micro precise uh, parts. I was going to say, in in
0: the jewelry world, uh, turning something on a manual lathe is still not considered handmade. Mm. There are legal definitions of of handmade in the jewelry world, mm. and you couldn't actually call something that you turned manually in a lathe handmade Mm. as you say you know are you going to take a a file and start filing out all of your all of your wheels by hand i mean that at what point do you you know
2: do you say oh this is a handmade watch it gets ridiculous yeah exactly what i want to say is like what, what i think is important is that it's like i would more say like human made in, instead of this, yes. it, it's made in some kind of big production line, whereas when when you see some of the like production lines of watches, uh, not like the high end brands, but uh, a lot of the middle ones, I mean, there's basically no mm. people really touching the product anymore. It's more when you see like a car manufacturer with uh, a different kind of uh, op- like automatic machines doing uh, most of the, the operation. So I think in 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 that respect, it's more like making like a like a, a piece made. Made by 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 a human for for humans, you know, like that is a kind of a thing, and I think it's also something that is really, when you are collecting watches uh, or anything else like collectible, if there is some like person behind it, like some kind of artist that that have made it, it, it makes a lot it makes a lot stronger connection uh, to you. It's 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 just like if you go to 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 IKEA and buy a a, a painting made by by a robot or whatever however they are doing, mm-hmm. they have like these ones that make with with brushes. It's 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 just like a nice canvas with paint on but it's but it's nothing more than 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 that. But if if yeah. if it's made by uh by a by an artist that's done it and use like a ton of time painting this painting for you. It's, it's, com- it's a com- completely different experience, and, uh, and, and that is what I want to, to, to capture with my watches.
0: Yeah, I think the individual who's making it is more important than the processes per se, and also the, the individual is more important than the location as well. I know a lot of people make a big deal out of, oh, this is made in Switzerland, or this is made in America, or this is made in whatever, you know, whatever country. But at the end of the day, if I'm the artist, it doesn't matter where I'm making this piece. I, I could be making it anywhere. The, the important thing is that I'm the one who's making it, or or it's a Christian Last Watch. It mm. doesn't matter so much if that Christian Last Watch is made in Denmark or Switzerland or wherever. It's more important that you're the one who's making it. And again, it doesn't matter so much that it, you know how the how you're actually making it. It's it's more that the intention behind it is yours, and
2: you're the one who's responsible for it. Mm, absolutely. I mean, of course, I think that's a little bit different uh, depending on where it is. I mean, you see, like uh, American uh, watchmaking has like uh, its flavor to it. You you, you can definitely mm-hmm. trace some kind of style to, to to that. The Swiss watchmaking have another one, right, and and so on. And the German watchmaking it's, it's come completely different, and uh, and that is uh, some something I, I kind of uh, like as well. That as some kind of just, just like with wine, uh, it's the same grapes, but it can taste different depends on where <laughs> it's uh, located in the world.
1: And the reality as well is that we are so interdependent. None of us can can do this wholly by ourselves. Even George Daniels was sourcing his his jewels. I'm sure he'd shape the odd one, but for the most part he was sourcing his jewels, getting his hairsprings from Hamilton and the like. Mm. None of us as watchmakers can make absolutely everything. We need to depend on one another and there are different people with different skills and it's the amalgamation of of all these things that allow us to even consider creating uh, a piece Mm. that that we have a a vision for there has to be someone who has the the driving force and and the vision of course but we rely on each other to Mm. to actually make the these creations happen Mm.
2: yeah exactly i mean i that's also one of my like big like one of my big philosophy in, in in what i do is to to use the best people for for the work you know mm-hmm. that is uh, it's, it's it's not so important that because i cannot be like 100% in everything you know like that, that that's impossible you know right. like I, I i cannot be you know like an amazing guy in in the in, in producing parts and doing finishing and doing this this and that and doing uh, in engraving and doing dial design and do you know like this. in 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 watchmaking you 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 have to to know the same as you know, like many many uh, different occupations, and, and, and one you have to be a great machinist, a great designer, a programmer, uh, you know, like in, you name it, and, and it's uh, in, and to put that everything into to, to, to one one person that is uh, in, in impossible. So so that, that therefore I think it's really important that one have like a like a good vision of what, what is what we want to accomplish. And then find the the the, the right people uh, to 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 accomplish that that, that task mm-hmm. in order to make like a superior product.
1: Yeah, one distinction that I, I appreciate I've heard you make before is that uh, collectors who are, are collecting from these mass produced watches they they're collecting references, whereas or, or reference numbers to be more a matter of fact. Whereas someone who's, who's buying a a a last timepiece or a Voutilainen timepiece or a four they're collecting craftsmanship. Yeah,
2: definitely. In in the beginning, when when I started watchmaking, I also you know like studied all the books about. It. I knew all the reference of Rolex and Patek and, and 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 all this. But I I kind of became like pretty hollow because there was not so much more to that. That it was just like more like a treasure hunt for 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 the number and and mm-hmm. just say okay I I I have that one and and that is also also that that's another way of collecting. When 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 you get a, a little bit deeper in, in into watchmaking, then you can appreciate the the different crafts that that, that, that are in inside. Which I, I can see with the collectors I'm working with, that it takes quite some some years to to develop that that kind of see, to 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 kind of to to really can, can see what what makes like a Kari watch or a Defour watch or or Viani watch or my watch or whatever like different from 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 the rest. Because they, there is this, this like human factor and like the perfection in the parts that, that really makes like a, really, uh, like a big difference that is uh, like super interesting for both as a personal aspect, for that you get the con- connection with the person who have made it, of course, and, and also that, that you have this kind of unique piece of art that you can bring with you on your wrist.
0: Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at OffHours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at SilverHand.